This is the Go Pack Podcast with your host, Jessica Curtis. Today we'll be discussing healthcare policy with Josh Archambault and be hearing a message from former speaker Newt Gingrich. I am so excited for Josh Archambault, a senior fellow on healthcare policy at the Cicero and Pioneer Institutes to be joining us today. Last week, Josh spoke in Boston to a group of legislators talking about 10 health policy changes that should outlive COVID-19. Josh, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself and your work experience that kind of got you into studying healthcare? Sure. Well, thanks so much for having me on. You know, my experience, I started as a relatively junior staffer working for a governor and healthcare just dominated in our time there, whether it was conversations around Medicaid and what percentage of the state budget it was taking up, or just how patients should be able to interact with the healthcare system or the price of healthcare. And just on a personal basis, you know, I think all of us, including myself, have had family members who have interacted with the healthcare system. We're all patients if we haven't been um, on a regular basis. Chronic conditions are such an issue in this country. And just seeing the struggle that people have had to afford healthcare, the lack of consumer orientation has really driven me to want to dedicate my professional career to trying to fix so much, uh, so many of the problems that are in healthcare. So after my time in the governor's office, spent some time in a state legislature as a legislative director for a state senator and worked on healthcare as well as many other issues. Then when I transitioned out of government, have been in the think tank world for a long time, really trying to increase the uh, power of markets in healthcare and make sure that we are getting better value, uh, higher quality care for less uh, ever since. How has the COVID-19 pandemic affected change in healthcare policy. So how, how long do we have? Uh, <laughs> I mean, really, I mean, a- every single American, I think, has has seen the headlines around COVID-19 and the way that has put a spotlight on our healthcare system, both the good, bad and the ugly. I mean, I just microcosm of so much of the conversation that's been happening in the health policy world for decades. Um, I think we saw a real struggle from the health system to react when so many people were presenting as being ill. We realized how inflexible and how government regulations often get in the way in helping uh, doctors and providers to be able to react to it. You know, there's a whole sub conversation to be had about vaccine development and how they get approved and some of the, the challenges there, the public health discussions around who gets to decide what happens in the economy and the rules that are going to be allowed for how we operate on a day-to-day basis. And then we saw a lot of governors and state legislators take a lot of action, pass a lot of bills during COVID-19 in response to say, hey, we, we're seeing these problems in healthcare. We need to waive some of the barrier, regulatory barriers that are in place. And in some instances, they've returned back into legislatures and tried to remove some of those barriers, which I think is really, really important both for our country, not only to make sure that we're ready for future pandemics, which are inevitable and they will come, uh, but also to address some of the issues. I mean, healthcare remains, if you look at the polling, at number two or number three for biggest concerns for Americans. And we've seen healthcare price inflation for years. Uh, We're hearing it in terms of gas and other areas in our economy, but in healthcare, it's become something that we almost uh, just assume it's going to go up every single year. And I think COVID-19 only just put a brighter spotlight on some of those issues. Absolutely. And, and, you know, the healthcare topic is something that our chairman, David, and I say over and over again to our legislators, just the healthcare message is not being communicated at the level that it should be to really hit home with the chief household health advisor, if you will, in each household, which is usually the mom. So kind of along those lines, since the end of 2020, we have seen prices at the gas pumps nearly double around the country. And that really makes it harder 
to get people to the doctor's office, and, and in some cases, it makes it impossible. So why don't you tell us what you think state legislature's role um, should be in, in working to provide interstate telehealth? Yeah, I mean, this is especially acute in rural communities where access is already a problem. I, I think telehealth, once again, uh, made a lot of headlines, was in the newspaper. And I, I think a couple of things that I would say, the first is telehealth is actually a quite diverse area. Uh, there are many tools in that toolbox. You know, we tend to think of telehealth as sitting at a computer or on your smartphone and talking to somebody by video. There's actually many different kinds of telehealth. The other thing I don't think people fully understand is that state legislators play a significant key role in setting the rules of the road for telehealth. A lot of the coverage telehealth during the pandemic was around federal rule changes for those that are on Medicare. But that's really primarily, and this is an oversimplification, but primarily for people over 65. And so those rules are different than the ones that apply in the states. If you are uninsured, if you have a small business insurance, if you buy insurance on your own, it's a different set of rules. And so state legislators play a very, very key role in making sure that the state laws and rules and regulations allow for a flexible healthcare system. And when it comes to transportation and access, interstate telehealth and intrastate telehealth both are vitally important. You know, in some communities, there just are not certain kinds of doctors or providers. And the only way to access them is telehealth. And so allowing for doctors and other kinds of providers to be able to be in another state, if they're in good standing, to be able to see a patient when there is not one in your local community is just essential. And I think a lot of the state laws are out of date. I mean, an analogy that I've used often has been around pilots. We don't assume a pilot loses all of their skills and ability once they cross the state line and they land in one state. If a state effectively said, we will only use Texas licensed pilots or Massachusetts-based pilots or Michigan-based pilots, then what would happen? They'd have an instant shortage of pilots and they come to a screeching halt. That's effectively what we're doing in our healthcare world in which we are saying we're going to arbitrarily not allow providers to practice in another state. So state legislators need to move forward and allow for interstate telehealth. And there's some very good uh, state action that's happened in the states of Florida and Arizona that serve as models that I think other state legislators could look towards. And, you know, Florida, for example, what are they doing right? Yeah, so there's a couple different things that they're doing well. One is they allow all providers to use telehealth, you know, anything from a nutritionist to a nurse or others, they've made it very clear that everybody can use it. And when it comes to a cross-state line, they've said that if you're a provider in another state and you are in good standing, there's no sorts of disciplinary concerns or actions against you, then you can register with the state of Florida and you can start to see patients in Florida. Florida patient can choose to use you. Nobody's forcing you to use these sorts of providers, but you are now another other option. And whether it comes to opioid addiction issues, substance disorder issues, or whether it's mental health, behavioral health, those areas in particular, there have seen an enormous spike in the use of telehealth. And what's really interesting is we've seen some actually great initial studies coming out showing better outcomes over telehealth. Because if you think about being able to text by telehealth at three o'clock in the morning, when you're somebody who finally has decided to get clean, there may not be providers in your community that are open at that time and available. And so allowing these additional ways to act access care is just vitally, vitally important. And states like Florida and Arizona have set up a very reasonable, transparent, accountable system to make sure that everybody has a pathway forward to increase access, but also lower the cost of care. America has a a severe physician shortage, and it really, it comes down to being a matter of life and death. COVID made it really abundantly clear that that was a problem. So tell us a little bit about how you think allowing internationally trained physicians help 
combat the problem? What what can states do to make this happen so we can alleviate the shortage of, of physicians we're, we're seeing around the country? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the research and projections here are uh, quite scary, actually, whether it's uh, the retirement wave that's coming for physicians, whether it's burnout rates pre and post COVID, whether it's consolidation that's happened in the hospital market, which is burning uh, providers out. This is a problem now, and it's only going to get worse. There, there's many issues why this is the case, but really one solution that I think is very promising is for a long time, there were some researchers poking around, uh, looking at trends of internationally trained physicians from the UK or Canada or others coming to the States from some of these other countries. And they realized, and they heard anecdotally repeatedly that some of the world's best experts from these other countries weren't coming to America because they actually have to come and repeat their residency. So this is when they work you know, very long hours for almost no pay. So you may have a world-renowned physician in London who, um, this was a real case that I heard of, did not want to come to Boston because for three or four years, they were going to have to make peanuts and work 70, 80 hours. They had a family. Um, and so they decided to stay in the UK. And so states can step forward and pass a law that basically says, look, if you're again in good standing, you've gone to a reputable institution, you've met every other criteria that we have, we're just going to say that you don't need to repeat your residency to remove that barrier. So this won't solve all the problems in the physician shortage area, but it certainly is another tool to be able to address this problem. And like you said, in many communities, this does become a life or death issue because this isn't the difference between you seeing an American trained physician versus an internationally trained. It's the difference between you seeing a physician or no physician at all. How do you think the Biden administration has impacted the integrity of the Medicaid program? Yeah, I think this is one of those underreported areas going forward. So for listeners that may remember the debates around uh, the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare, I mean, the vast majority of people received their coverage through Medicaid and Medicaid expansion in many states. And what has happened during COVID is that in 2020, Congress passed a law that basically said to states, we'll give you a little bit of extra money, but in return, you can't remove anybody from the program, even if they're no longer eligible. And so as a result, we've continued to see a ballooning of enrollment on that program. And for states, they may be paying insurance companies or others for people who now maybe got laid off during COVID and now are on employer-based insurance, but we're effectively double paying for these individuals. They no longer qualify. And what I think is scary is the Biden administration has been encouraging states to say, well, when we eventually pull back the public health emergency, take your time to remove anybody. These people no longer qualify for the program. There should be a rush to get them off the program to save taxpayer money, make sure it's really saved for those that are truly needy. And so the Biden administration has called into question a number of the ways that states can check eligibility, how frequently they can check them and telling them to just to not even check now until well after the public health emergency. And when you look at reports showing that one in five dollars is misused and misspent in Medicaid. I mean, we're talking billions and billions of dollars that could be spent on infrastructure, lower taxes, any number of other issues. And instead, they're going into a big black hole in Medicaid. Right. And and that said, kind of along those lines, do you think that those people are better or worse off? Than, than they were pre-Biden administration. Yeah, I mean, I think it depends a little bit on the situation for individuals. I mean, for those that were are now on Medicaid and instead were previously on private-based insurance, I mean, the research on this is, yeah, the private-based insurance may be a tad more expensive, but the outcomes tend to be a little bit better. Uh, so for those individuals from an outcome standpoint, they have access issues when they're on Medicaid, finding a provider that even takes Medicaid, the outcomes are just have not been even uh, at best. Sometimes one research study actually showed that uh, the uninsured seemed to fare just 
as well, if not better, than those that are on Medicaid, which should call into question the quality of the coverage to begin with. I think state legislators need to pay really close attention to this issue for a variety of reasons. One is, it is their number one line item in their budget. It is eating up all of the money that could be spent on public education or other issues that might they might care about at the state level. And they are, again, paying for people who no longer qualify for the program. And so they can do a lot to re-examine whether taking the enhanced federal money is worth it anymore. They may be spending more in state dollars. They may want to pull out early. They may want to be focused on helping their Medicaid agencies start doing redeterminations now so that when they are able to remove people who aren't eligible anymore, they can do that more quickly instead of continuing to pay for months and months or up to a year for individuals that no longer qualify. What do you think would be the top issue that state legislators around the country that are listening to you right now can address to directly impact the quality of health care that their constituents receive? Yeah, I mean, I would put two near the top. I think certainly telehealth um, has gotten a lot of press, but there's a lot more work to do in states uh, to clean up and update their state laws. So I'd put that near the top. And uh, interstate telehealth is probably the lowest hanging fruit and best opportunity there. I think the other one is to continue to build on the efforts around price transparency. I think there has not been a real full understanding of the power of price transparency and how much more states could do to leverage price transparency to make sure that their state employees are purchasing insurance in a much more sophisticated way or making sure those that are on private insurance are rewarded when they pick lower cost options. There is a lot of work to be done there. And those two issues alone poll in the high 80s or 90% on a bipartisan way. And so there's really no reason uh, state legislators shouldn't be laser focused on those policy areas. Josh, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. Over the past few weeks, we've been listening to segments of an American majority, not a Republican majority, in which former Speaker Gingrich takes a deeper dive into the famed contract with America that helped lead the first Republican House majority in 40 years. Here's part three. The contract with America became famous because it was the centerpiece of the House Republican campaign, which won a majority for the first time in 40 years. As I mentioned earlier, the contract campaign stood on President Ronald Reagan's shoulders. The contract's capital steps rally of candidates was modeled after the one with Reagan in September 1980. We knew it would draw media attention because we'd already done it. Reagan himself had described a contract back in that 1980 event that I participated in. As he himself said, quote, this occasion marks the first time that legislative and executive candidates of a party have come together to propose a contract with the American people. But the times demand a unique response. For too long, government has been distant and uncaring. Now we must return government to the people. You can see how much I honestly believe that we stood on Reagan's shoulders. The contract was written with an understanding that nothing would be included that was supported by fewer than 60% and ideally more than 70% of the American people. By definition, that meant we were writing a bipartisan document that appealed far beyond the Republican base. Most of the specifics in the contract grew straight out of President Reagan's policies. For example, candidate Reagan had advocated a work-oriented welfare reform in his first race for governor in 1966. We finally passed it into law 30 years later in 1996, and it became the most successful conservative reform of our lifetime. We added one other rule to our development of the contract. Because we knew that the news media was our active opponent, 
Many of them had worked as Democratic staffers. We insisted that some of our favorite items, specifically right to life and school prayer, would not be in the contract. They would have allowed the New York Times and other left-wing media to focus only on those issues. This was a tough decision because I am strongly pro-life and believe America would be much better off with prayer back in school. But looking back, it was right because the media would have totally ignored all the strong points of the contract and distorted it as a southern right-wing document. The biggest understanding about the contract was its bipartisan nature. The news media had to find an explanation for our stunning victory after four decades, and they could not blame the arrogance, corruption, and failures of their friends in the Democratic Party. Therefore, they had to blame me and interpret our victory as narrowly partisan. However, however, note how the contract was framed in a speech on the House floor, September 22, 1994, a week before the Capitol Steps signing ceremony. This is me speaking from the House floor in 1994. There's not a negative word here about the Democratic Party. There's not a negative word here about President Clinton and his administration. It is an effort on our part to be positive. You might, you might say, why are we being positive about this? Well, I think that there are two very profound reasons why it would be good to have a positive campaign in October of 1994 rather than a negative campaign. The first reason is that people are so frustrated, people are so hostile, people are so angry that you don't need to go out and get a matter. You don't have to go out and beat up on President Clinton or go out and beat up on the Congress. People get it. They're already fed up. What people want to know, I think, is what are you going to do differently? And our challenge to Democrats is if they don't like our 10 bills, what are theirs? If they don't like our three reforms, what are theirs? Let's have a debate between ideas. But let's not have the kind of negative smear tactics that have driven the country, I think, to distraction and have broken down any, any willingness to have a decent political debate. We're prepared to debate on the issues. Is it a good idea to have a balanced budget amendment and line item veto or not? Is it a good idea to have an effective, believable, and timely death penalty for violent offenders or not? Uh, should we encourage work and family in the welfare system or not? I mean, these are real policy proposals, and we're going to have next Tuesday a whole set of bills. All ten bills are already going to be written and available. Now, there's a second reason, I would argue, why it would be good to actually try to have a debate in October on the issues. I think this country is in trouble. I mean, people have talked about the economic recovery and all this stuff. Nonsense. The underlying core pattern of where America's at is real trouble. And if you don't believe me, watch any major city local television news, including Washington, for two nights. The child abuse, the rape, the murders, the cocaine dealing, the problems of American life are unbelievable. I am a history teacher. And I tell every audience that as a matter of history, not politics, as a matter of history, it is impossible to maintain American civilization with 12-year-olds having babies, 15-year-olds killing each other, 17-year-olds dying of AIDS, and 18-year-olds getting diplomas they can't read. I don't think that's debatable. 
I think it's clear. I have to say that when I said that back then, I really deeply believed it. And when I began to work on this proposal, I was stunned at how much it is all still relevant, how much we're still facing the same problems, and how much we still need of a deep reform. You know, my speech was really modeled on Reagan's statement on the Capitol steps 14 years earlier. To quote Reagan, speaking personally, I can remember the many times in California when I reached out to members of the other party in order to pass important legislation. I know that all of us here today as a team will also seek close cooperation with the other side throughout our terms. Now, that was Reagan on bipartisanship in 1980, and that is what Reagan did as president for eight years. The news media didn't want to cover it and has since, frankly, just lied about it. But the truth is that the bipartisan appeal of the contract with America can be seen in the voting pattern on the House floor. The specific contract items average getting 63 Democrats voting with the House Republicans. I know this is the opposite of the news media mythology, so don't take my word for it. Here are the key votes in 1995. The Congressional Accountability Act, 228 Republicans, 200 Democrats voted yes. The Line Item Veto Act, 223 Republicans, 71 Democrats voted yes. Taking Back Our Streets Act, the House passed elements of this package in several forms. The Exclusionary Rule Reform Act, 220 Republicans, 69 Democrats voted yes. The Effective Death Penalty Act, 226 Republicans, 71 Democrats voted yes. The Violent Criminal Incarceration Act, 206 Republicans, 59 Democrats voted yes. The Local Government Law Enforcement Block Grants Act, 220 Republicans and 18 Democrats voted yes. The Personal Responsibility Act of 1995, that's welfare reform, 225 Republicans and 9 Democrats voted yes. The Unfunded Mandate Reform Act, 230 Republicans and 130 Democrats voted yes. The American Dream Restoration Act, 219 Republicans and 27 Democrats voted yes. The National Security Revitalization Act, 223 Republicans and 18 Democrats voted yes. The Job Creation and Wage Enhancement Act, 219 Republicans and 58 Democrats voted yes. The Securities Litigation Reform Act, 226 Republicans and 99 Democrats voted yes. Proposing a balanced budget amendment to the Constitution of the United States, 228 Republicans and 78 Democrats voted yes. Proposing an amendment to the Constitution with respect to how long you could serve. This was pure term limits. 189 Republicans and 38 Democrats voted yes. Our bipartisan American majority approach enabled House Republicans to survive the 1996 loss in the presidential campaign and retain the majority for the first time since 1928. The American people endorsed the positive attitude, positive reforms, and focus on an American rather than a Republican agenda. The ability to legislate with a bipartisan majority continued in 1997 when we moved to balance the federal budget, which succeeded in balancing for four years for the only time in our lifetime. When we initially passed the Balanced Budget Act of 1997, the initial vote was 219 Republicans and 51 Democrats voting yes. When the final conference report came up after we'd met with the Senate, 193 Republicans 
and 153 Democrats voted yes. We had achieved an enormous step forward with bipartisan majorities for conservative reforms because we had followed the lesson of President Reagan and the strategies he'd learned at General Electric and described by Thomas Evans in his book, The Education of Ronald Reagan. If you are determined to be an American majority and you are committed to listening to and learning from the American people, it is amazing how much the grassroots will help you legislate in a bipartisan way. Next time, we'll hear Newt's fourth and final portion of an American majority, not a Republican majority, where Newt discusses the wonderful opportunity we Republicans have at hand right now and what the future may hold in creating and implementing an America that works. I hope you can join us. This has been the Go Pack Podcast. Learn how we're educating and electing a new generation of Republican leaders at gopack.org.